if there's no news because there's no comms. They've stopped you from calling home. 74 people that went down with that vessel uh, remain there in their watery grave. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is in my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your country. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you were going to funerals quite often. Do I lead under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. It should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, or what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. I'm Alex Lloyd, and you're listening to Life on the Line. Rebecca Simmons served in the Royal Australian Navy for 18 years and was medically discharged in 2020 at the rank of Chief Petty Officer. Beck was a medic deployed to Timor and Afghanistan. Her husband, Ashley Simmons, was a clearance diver, also serving in the Navy for 18 years. Ash had multiple deployments, including to Afghanistan. He was a clearance diver, an explosive ordnance disposal expert, and was in Kabul during the evacuation as the Taliban retook the country in 2021. He was medically discharged in 2022 as a chief petty officer. My conversation with both of them was recorded at Gaythorn RSL in Brisbane. Ash and Beck, welcome to Life on the Line. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. And I also have to acknowledge we are welcoming Milo, who's in the studio with us today. So if you hear a bit of shuffling or uh, any sort of dog noises, that's dear Milo tuning in. Beck, where were you born? Where did you grow up? I was born in Melbourne, in Paran, and I grew up in mostly Melbourne, but like um, Peninsula, Mornington Peninsula area. Went to Frankston High School, graduated from there, joined the Navy. My dad. My dad served in the Navy as well. He did 22 years as a chef. And then um, I was in grade three at, at Overport Primary School and they had a careers day and they had people from HMAS Cerberus come down and like talk to us about potential careers and what they do in the Navy and all that sort of stuff. And it was totally glorified. It was wonderful and I loved it. So I always knew from grade three that I was going to join the Navy. And Ash, what inspired you to end up down the career path that you had? Look, mine's very similar to Beck. My father was also in the Navy. Um, he lasted maybe six to 12 months before he found himself back out uh, in the civilian world. But from that day, I sort of uh, was aware that dad uh, had that sort of career path for a, for a short time. Um, so that spiked my interest. And then I spent a lot of time uh, surf clubs and swimming and, and a lot of time in that marine environment. So that sort of secured my ideas of moving into the Navy and then particularly down the clearance diving route. I grew up in Adelaide, um, born and bred, all through schooling, uh, and then at the 19, left to join the Navy. So I'm an Adelaide boy through and through. Beck, what were your early training experiences like? Early training? That goes way back. Okay, let me go into the file effects of my yeah. memory. For context, we're talking 2002, aftermath of 9-11, still yeah. the world stage is very much in a heightened sense of alert, anxiety. Mm. Uh, we're on a more of an active war front footing than we have been 
previously and you are putting your hand up to join the Australian Defence Force. I am, yeah. I was in year 11 when the September 11 happened. It didn't deter me. It wanted me to make time go faster. Let's hurry up and get in, in, get this situation happening. Let me get my skills. Let me get out there and do what I have to do. I didn't even think about doing anything else. That's, I was driven from grade three. That was my path. So, yeah, so I, I didn't abscond from that path. Even with everything that was happening in the world, it probably just motivated me more to tick, 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 hurry up, time go past. So You felt that patriotic call? I wouldn't say at that point I was being patriotic. I was excited about doing something different. I was excited about getting out of Frankston. You know, nothing against Frankston, but a little bit anyway. <laughs> so it was the adventure? It was the adventure, yeah, and it was totally out of my scope of everything that I ever knew. But I also saw that my dad was able to provide for our family and he went on some amazing tours, like he went around the world and saw some amazing places and why wouldn't you want to be part of that? So, And I think a lot of it was driven by some of the amazing presents I used to get from my dad when he used to go overseas and I was like, oh, I want to go there too. I want to buy presents for myself over there as well. So, yeah, that was sort of the motivation but didn't deter off. It just made me want to go more. So you enthusiastically put that hand up, hurriedly signed the dotted line. I did. I actually um, originally signed, went to the recruitment office and I don't even think I was 16 yet. And I was going to join as a chef. My dad did not want me to join the Navy as, um, as a woman, as, a, as his daughter. He would have a memory of a bit of a different Navy though and... Uh, yeah. He can imagine what you might have been walking into. Absolutely. Like I think dad's experience with being at sea with females is probably quite limited um, for the amount of times that, that the amount of time he was actually in the Navy. But yeah, like he was just being a protective dad. Anyway, I went into the recruitment office, asked to sign up. They said, yeah, you can, but you got to go back and finish school. So I was like, okay, I will. But I still had two and a half years to wait to actually join. It was a long waiting list for medics. So which also to put in context, Beck didn't mention that her family was still living in Frankston at the time. So there was quite a few weekends where her and her new uh, Navy and medical fraternity would uh, lob on her parents' doorstep, uh, ruin the house for the weekend and then go back to training for the week. Dad would come and pick us up from Cerberus in his Statesman, lowered, massive exhaust on it, blaring Jimmy Barnes, going through Cerberus like he's the king. And we just all pile in and then go to mum and dad's for a feed and a few beers and it was good times. Ash, you joined in 2005, direct entry, clearance diver. What was it specifically about the clearance diver role that appealed to you? I'd spent a lot of time within that marine environment, um, surfing a lot, competitive swimming, surf club, all that sort of stuff. And at the time, I had grand plans of going to the Olympics. Unfortunately, people like Ian Thorpe and Grant Hackett exist, and that sort of ruined those dreams. It did allow me, however, to go in with a base level of skills that would allow me to operate in that environment um, with relative ease. Um, introduce uh, diving sets and some more complex sort of tasks. Um, but I already had the, the base level weight off, so that made life um, a lot easier for me through that process. And how does the direct entry process work? Because I've interviewed people before that do a, basically a form of selection to become a clearance diver, so I imagine it's a harder entrance level. Yeah, that's right. So same as anyone else that would join as a direct entry sailor, you would go and do your three months at Cerberus, move through a few specialist courses at Cerberus and then you would find yourself moving up to HMAS Penguin, which is sort of the, the dive school and the home of the clearance diver as such. And then you would go through a suite of training there, starting with that exactly that, the clearance diver acceptance test, 
which at the time was a 10-day acceptance test, um, which would expose you to sleep depth, food depth, sort of extreme physical training, pack marching, swimming, diving, carrying canoes, the whole gamut, whatever they could sort of imagine in the lead up to stress you and break you down to that core sort of person that you are, that that being, um, and that's where they would really assess who you are and whether you can cope with those sort of stresses. And how did you find the test of those stresses? Look, I loved every second of it. There was a lot of guys that would go through that and had never been in the water at all, a few of them, which blew my mind as to why they would want to be a clearance diver to start with. But I was stoked. Like as soon as there was a water activity, I was happy because I knew that would be somewhat of a a rest period as such for me. Uh, Put me on land. My running is uh, subpar, but I can get through and get enough done to to mix it with, with the group. Um, but anytime I'm near the water, I'm happy. Um, so I really enjoyed that and had a, a, a good result in the end, which saw me uh, move straight through to the next clearance diving course. So the pathway from there, once you uh, completed and accepted um, through that testing phase, you'll move on to what's called the ship's divers course. So it's a basic uh, scuba diving course, one that any sort of paddy um, sort of level person in the civilian mod can do. Uh, it's basically just anyone in the Navy, it's open to. So that anyone on any ship and any rate or rank can become a ship's diver. Uh, once you tick that off, it's sort of, a, I guess, a pre-screening to clearance diving course. Uh, to show that you can dive, you're happy to dive at night for extended hours and so on. So it's almost that level of screening again. Uh, and then you move into your sort of nine to 10 month clearance diving course where you move through your five uh, phases being uh, at the time for me, maritime tactical operations, uh, mine countermeasures, explosive ordnance disposal, underwater battle damage repair, and maritime EOD. Now, Beck, while Ash is going through his uh, early training runs, you're on HMAS Canimbla, 2005 to 2007. I was on there a little bit earlier. Um, for I did some of my training on there, um, my sea phase training on there as a baby medic, um, and then I just continued to get reposted there. <laughs> so it was kind of um, that was just spot, and I was happy to go to sea. I felt like I could do my job at sea. Uh, it was wonderful. But yeah, during that time when you're going through your training, yeah, I was in Timor. Um, we had, yeah, all sorts of things. Fiji coup happened at that time. Um, yeah, busy time for me. The only time I actually came off the ship was to do like advanced courses or and even then it was only a few months. So back to it. So I was on there from a seaman medic to a leading seaman medic. And Canimbla is not the most elegant ship shall we say? Look, she's pretty in the dark. <laughs> she's pretty in the dark when all the lights are on. She looks gorgeous. But no, you're right. You know, she's brutal, but a workhorse. Like we went everywhere. We were doing humanitarian all the time. It was one year we were hardly home. I, I spent Christmases and New Year's being duty on that ship. It was just how the Navy was. Like you, you were busy. You were working. Talk to me about Timor. Oh, it's my first uh, introduction to international parts of the world I guess or international maritime stuff you know um we had been I'd already been around Australia a little bit but going to Timor was we went there um we got the call to go there was a coup happening at the time um and we were going over there to provide humanitarian support and that's pretty much what Canimla and Manura and Tobruk were doing at the time and to some degree success as well yeah, we got there. We provided first aid and health treatment to the detention centre there because of the coup between the government forces, correctional services and police. There was no one there to maintain that. Um, so I was going there daily to do, to provide that to the detainees. 
um, some of the rewarding stuff about Timor. We, we went to the orphanage there and a lot of the orphans that were in that particular orphanage were teenagers, young adults from the previous Timor conflict. So seeing them and they're having children too and they're all still coming back to this church, it was beautiful. We provided inoculations and vaccination programs there and got to hang out with some of the, um, the sisters at the church there. So all in all, it was pretty good. Just a bit of an eye-opener for not even a 21-year-old. or Yeah, 21 at the time, I think, yeah. Uh, when I think of Timor, I think of their laws. It's very tribal. It's very much done within the villages. Um, they don't like to incorporate the police and government too much into that. because it's very an eye-for-an-eye justice. Exactly. And it, I, in, to a certain degree, it's almost like it's quite a justified kind of thing, like they've got a balance there and it seems to work. But these were the worst of the worst, you know, rapists, murderers. There's no petty crime in there, so... They're pretty bad people in there. But you're also then clashing together a system that it might largely, in its large part, have its own equilibrium through its own state of being with then this Western big presence crashing in and trying to bridge those two. And it was a massive presence too. Like from we, we had Canimbla and we had Tobruk, but on board Canimbla, we on our way to Timor, we stopped in Townsville, we stopped in, in Darwin, and there was... I don't even know how many people were on board, but it was chockers. Like we had so many army on board, it was busy. And then by the time we unloaded onto the wharf, it, we were very intrusive um, to this small little community. So um, pretty full on. Those first couple of years are quite busy for you. We mentioned Timor. Uh, you mentioned the Fiji coup. There's also the Black Hawk crash. Not long after we returned home from Timor, I had actually posted off the ship finally. Um, I got posted to HMAS Penguin to the um, the hospital that was there. I was there maybe two weeks and then I was back on Canimbla for, for the coup for Fiji. On the way back, that's when we had the Black Hawk crash. We had fatalities, many survived, but yeah, it was shocking. Considering your medical role, I imagine you were sort of front of scene for that? Correct. So uh, by the time I got off Canimbla and I came back, I was a leading seaman. There was myself and there was another leading seaman female that was part of the group that went on for this um, deployment. They don't see you as you've only got so many years' experience in this situation. They see you as a leading seaman and therefore you have to be a particular way. But I had years of, of you know being taught the ropes and fitting in and making sure I wouldn't make a mistake and doing all that stuff. By the time the Black Hawk crash happened, because I'd been on the ship for so long, it was just wrote I just got into what I needed to do I went in I went to the boat deck I went and treated patients in the the treatment room I helped set up the triage bay in the um in the hangar all that stuff that was just you just got it done that's just how it was were you proud good question uh not at the time I am probably not for a while probably in the last maybe six seven weeks I'm probably I know it seems like such a big gap, right? But, you know, life teaches you things and you go through situations where you learn things from it. So I, I, I am, mean, I'm proud of that person and what she did and what she was exposed to and how she managed to... Even then, though, you're putting yourself in the third person. I am, yeah, yeah. Tricky conversation to have because I'm learning who I am right now and I've had a lot of growth in, growth in the last couple of months. However, I haven't had time to actually think about what Beck was like back then and what she actually achieved and how that has created who I am today and how how I am at life. This is the first time I've actually even talked about any of this stuff. Um, I have close friends that will probably hear this that will be hearing things for the first time. 
for context, I haven't heard to that detail ever. So, yeah, to to ask the question of are you proud, that's a great question because uh, I think Beck's just realising that she is actually proud of herself for the things that she's done. Well, Ash, while Beck is smashing it and doing lots at sea, you're getting going. You've uh, done clearance over course. You're posted to HMAS, Gascoigne, doing border protection work. You two are on a collision course to meet. But before we get to that, as you settle into the rhythm of Navy life, you're loving it. This is exactly where you're meant to be. If it can't be an Olympic swimming pool, this is a pretty good alternative. Yeah, that's exactly right. And my first posting from clearance diving course was the Mighty Warship Gascoigne. I wanted to go to sea. Uh, a lot of people uh, look at divers not going to sea, but I joined the I joined the Navy and I wanted to get out and see the world and, and go for this grand adventure that had been promised to me and that I fortunately received. Um, so I was straight up to sort of Northern Australia doing um, border patrol for illegal fishermen and at the time the boat people, which for me was really exciting and rewarding. Like that's what I'd set up to have this grand career and go and do these things help Australia be patriotic. Um, they were really sort of some calling cards for me. And I loved every second of it. Like while, when we weren't um, chasing illegal fishermen, we were doing our own fishing. And like fishing in those areas is amazing. It was hard work, but there was a lot of good play as well. When you did it, it was legal fishing? Uh, correct, yes. We were legal fishing. So you two meet on HMAS Penguin, Ship's Medical Emergency Team, SMET. Beck's the instructor. Ash is the student. When was this? When did you meet? I was uh, posted to HMAS Gascon at the time. And then as part of my position number on board the ship, that required me to have this qualification of being a SMET. So looking back in future, I'm quite fortunate that that number came up and I had to go and do this course because I met my wife and we've made the life that we have now. Um, so I look at that as being really lucky and that sort of almost fate um, to a degree. But when we actually met, I guess, and I'm quite average with dates and times, I think around 2010, earlier, 2008. Way earlier than that. <laughs> it was way earlier than that. I think I had been posted off Canimla and I had taken up an instruction job at Penguin at the medical school there. I was working there with Claire McBean, also Claire Fellows. She was the other SMED instructor. You came along, did a course, didn't really pay much attention to him. Like, he's just another diver on course. Like, was he a good student? Yeah. yeah. Because the medical school was the same place where the divers all were, it's like, oh, just another diver on the course, it's fine. He'll be great at it because they do it all the time they do a lot of first aid stuff. So it was like you didn't even have to pay any attention to him. And then we didn't really, I didn't really think that much of him. And then what, like four or five months later, he had graduated. Full honours. <laughs> yeah, there was um, just a chance meeting again at a local pub um, and we started talking and, and then exchanged phone numbers and then it just sort of grew and matured from there to, to here we are today. To be fair, I couldn't remember his name, so I gave him my phone, which was a Motorola Shine. It was like this shiny mirror thing. I'm like, oh, just put your number in. He's like, you don't remember my name. I'm like, I don't. I'm sorry. So a lasting impression that I made. Mm. As by nature of your careers, your paths diverge and you don't really have much professional overlap at this point. So we're going to be jumping back and forward between both of you. Ash, uh, let's start with you. In 2009, you end up in Tonga. A large amount of us sort of almost predicted it because we were uh, paying attention to the news and Princess Sashika was a personnel and vehicle ferry went down at, in Tonga. And at the time... Our Prime Minister was um, in Tonga for whatever political meeting was going on and their leaders asked for assistance. So we were almost into work uh, that morning and by sort of 10 o'clock we were loading uh, trucks to go to Amberley and fly out from there. 
So that was sort of a 24-hour period of get from work, land in Tonga, get set, and then we'll sort of almost figure out the the job when we were there. It was sort of that rushed. Unfortunately, once we got there and, and did a few initial dives to sort of understand water depths and currents and that sort of stuff, we quickly realized that it was just going to be too deep. So the 74 people that went down with that vessel uh, remain there in their watery grave, uh, which is unfortunate. It would have been nice to sort of retrieve them and, and send them back to their families, but it's, um, it's one of those things that sometimes you just can't do the job. Now, Beck, you described earlier that after the helicopter crash, you're there ready to go treat patients, and that's the kind of role I think most people would immediately imagine in their minds for a medic is that action, frontline, emergency treatment. While you're on HMAS Toowoomba, I guess you see another side of the medical treatment thing, that the the mental health component is a key part of your job as well. It's not the guts and the glory that might make the posters or the first association with the role, but it's also a very significant part of it. Can you talk me through that? The glamour, the cool stories, (laughs) they're a very small percentage. Um, Most of the time it's coughs, colds and sore holes that come through your sick bay door twice a day and sometimes in the middle of the night. When I posted onto HMAS Toowoomba, I had just completed my clinical manager's course. That's the senior medical course for enlisted defence people. And Navy hold it. Um, Navy's always had clinical managers. When I was discharging, we were slowly starting to integrate more of the learning or the the training into other services, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's caught on. I posted straight to Toowoomba as a leading seaman clinical manager. Essentially, they want the senior position to be a senior sailor position. Beck's cutting herself slightly short that she was that first leading seaman clinical manager to be deployed uh, and to be posted to a ship. So it was quite a big deal for her at the time and for Navy, she sort of led the way. Yeah, I'd just like to acknowledge that. My hype man. Yeah, so it it was quite a tricky position to be in because I slept and I ate and I hung out with all the junior sailors. But when it came to positions I and jobs and responsibilities I had a lot more which it was quite a complex thing to navigate those relationships on board both up and down as far as my posting on Toowoomba a lot of growth on that ship it was my first ship where I really experienced the effect mental health has on sailors in particular that's all I've really had a lot of exposure with Toowoomba in the, and we had two suicides on that ship, um, one prior to us deploying and then one while, whilst we were in India. A lot of the issues that came out uh, from that was that as a medic and as a senior medic, I have no scope, I have no view or any records of anybody's mental health stuff. There is, it's all psych and confidence at the time um, and even as a senior medical person, I don't have access to that information. So essentially someone's posting on and they could have mental health things going on that I wouldn't know about. Um, I would know about everybody else's asthma and heart issues and things like that, but not about mental health. We're not going to talk about the specifics of the cases, but when an event like that happens, obviously there's not so much you can do for that person, sadly, but it's more about, I guess, it's more about the welfare of the rest of the crew, I'd imagine. Correct. As a medic, we're taught that we're not just the medic for the casualty, we're a medic for between 150 to 5,000 people. Who knows how many it is, but it's a very selfless job. So when the when we were treating the casualty, um, I had members of the ship's company were with me in there helping me. I had a doctor on board helping as well. We were in Perth at the time, so for us to get any ambulance onto the base is a lengthy process. There were people down there that didn't sign up for this. Like that's not their job. It's not even my job. 
to do with that. I'm there to care for people and preventative health. I'm there that people can knock on the door if they've got an issue or something like that. And what followed that was it was just so much of a care about how the ship was going to handle this. What do we do next? I was so frazzled with taking care of everything else and making sure all the files were ready to go, all the paperwork, all that other stuff that comes with casualty at sea that was left on, on a lot on, on to me and our very small department, which is the logistics department. It's a lot, I think, thrust upon you. But I knew what I had to do and where I had to be, even though that wasn't even my job to do that. I wasn't posted there. That's the posted person to be there. But your training kicks in and you get on with it. The places that we went to and the people that we did it with, that's the stuff that you remember as well. I haven't been asked these questions, so it feels nice to be asked the question as well. Like to be able to say, yeah, that was a really shit situation that I was in. And something that we didn't do very well was care of the carers, even other medics. You know, people people were very reluctant to pick up the phone or send a text or, or send an email um, to see how things were going. It was, um, it was very isolating. I understand a lot of it was what do you say to someone in that situation, regardless how close you are with them. And even if you've been in a situation like that, how do you still – talk to somebody about that without going, well, when I, when that happened to me, this happened, you know, it's, it was very isolating. It was isolating from the Blackhawk crash, the two suicides on the ship. I had a young man take his life when I was teaching the junior medics course. Um, And that was, that was tragic, absolutely tragic. What hurt was that I didn't feel what I was supposed to feel, what I thought I was supposed to feel. I became used to the, the tragedy. It's like almost like something else is going to happen and I need to be fully prepared for this. Ash, let's pivot to you. Around this time period, you're training on explosive ordnance disposal and you're going to end up in Afghanistan. You're a sea creature that's finding its way into the desert. Can you explain that pathway and then talk about the training? I guess you look at the dive set as being the mode of transport to get to your job, which is the explosives. So take away that mode of transport, you're on land. It in theory, makes that job a whole lot easier. Uh, not always the case, but in theory, it's nice to, nice to say. September 11 had happened. Afghanistan had uh, more well and truly sort of kicked off at that stage. We were starting to churn through the uh, EOD techs and EOR techs at the time, uh, particularly through Army because it was land-based. So who would go? Obviously Army. Um, they just didn't have the foresight, as everyone did, that this war was going to go for so long. So they started supplementing uh, the EOD and EOR guys with uh, Navy and Air Force. Uh, And once I sort of heard of that, that was always going to be my trajectory, however I made that happen. And I would be involved in every sort of workup training for guys going away because I just wanted to grow that experience and I wanted to be in the right place at the right time. And I knew that that was going to be the right place. I just had to find my right time. Uh, And that right time sort of looked like they were looking for people to go and I was the only one left standing in the room. I'm like, all right, well, you have to go. At the time, I was an able seaman. Basically meant I wasn't able to do the course due to me being too junior. But because I was the last person left in that room, they're like, well, the annoying kid in the corner, we have to send him to do the course. And I got on the EOR course. That qualified me to then um, be deployable, uh, although still at it as an able seaman. And sort of the rest is history. I, I moved up to Brisbane at the time, joined 20 OD squadron, um, and deployed not long after that in uh, June of 2012. And that makes you the first and only person of the rank of able seaman to deploy to Afghanistan in a whole 20 odd years there. Yeah, that's right. And that's something that I'm, I guess, kind of, I guess, proud of. 
but to me that point is that that was kind of my grand final for that for that um, sort of sports analogy like I'd done all the training I just wanted to be employed um, and that was my that was my grand final to go to and deploy to Afghanistan to deploy to a war zone and to do what I'd always wanted to do um, so I look at that as sounds strange but I look at myself as lucky that I was actually able to get over and fulfill my career and, and be in a place where I can do that and as you are deploying to Afghanistan which we'll come back to in a sec you're now on the RAN medical ward at St Vincent's Bay. Correct, yeah, and I'm pregnant. <laughs> and you're pregnant, that's important yeah, distinction. So when did you two get married? We got married in 2014 uh, in Bali. Such an Aussie wedding. It was wonderful, hey. Um, but no, I, when I got home from, got back from Op Slipper in 2011, I fell pregnant post-deployment baby. And then Ashley moved to Brisbane in January that year. And then he was in Afghanistan and then I had Steel on my own. Well, not on my own. I moved back home with mum and dad down in Melbourne, down in Frankston. So Steel's born in Frankston. All comes back to Frankston. Yeah. Always takes you home. Yeah, it was one of those points where Beck being very um, stoic and as well as professional and career driven, she very much understood my desire to get away and deploy and go and do the job that I wanted to do. So it was quite an easy conversation for me to have with her that I said, look, I want to go. We had been preparing for that. And all of a sudden she's a little bit under the weather and decides to do a pregnancy test. And much to our surprise, uh, Steele's Steel's had other plans for his mum and dad. So yeah, uh, midway through my deployment, I sat on the phone uh, in Fob Hadrian in Draywood and listened to Beck give birth to our son. It's a supportive delivery room presence for the circumstances, I suppose. We had a photo of you in there as well. And all the nurses would come in and they'd all have a cry when they hear that. Oh, they're like, oh, where's the dad? And my dad was there. My mum and my auntie was there as well. And my dad's like, oh, I'm here. And they're like, I go, no, my husband or my partner at the time because we weren't married, he's over in Afghanistan. And then when we explain the story, they're just like oh, crying when they walk out. But, yeah, it was pretty full on. Particularly Beck, but also Mia, very lucky that her family has been so supportive and, and we're all there with her in the delivery room. They took her back in to live with them while I was away. So, yeah, it was very lucky that um, we had such a good family support network. So, Ash, on the deployment itself, you're there June 2012, and this is off the back of a few years of our heaviest war fighting. 2010 sees Australia's worst casualty period in Afghanistan. By 2012, there's still no external signs of things slowing down the tempo has been so high so constant and then you are really there on the ground uh, can you tell me some of the more memorable experiences you had in afghanistan and was it what you wanted it to be look it was it's definitely an experience something that i somewhat expected the things that happened to me to happen and definitely not in a sort of negative forward-looking way but like it's a war zone and bad things happen there more often than not you had a near miss with a sniper, I believe. Actually, our first patrol out, um, we were moving down into a Afghan army patrol base. We are going to go and occupy that for the evening. Just as a present patrol, move out in the morning, uh, a mounted patrol, spend the night there and then move back um, to our FOB uh, the following day. As we were, I was on the rear gun and as we were sort of moving down towards the patrol base, there was a bit of action going on with the A&A. They were having a little bit of a bit of a gunfight down in sort of the greenish zone, um, which was just down below this Afghan army base. So we could hear a bit of gunfire and that sort of stuff coming in, but far enough away that there wasn't really any concern. And there was a few sort of distinct shots, which once we got in there, we were informed there was a sniper up on the high ground. 
It was fine because they'd been pretty average all day and no one was really too concerned. So we dropped our armor and helmets, took in the sights as such because it was our first time out. It was all exciting. We were sort of lent on uh, a HESCO barrier, which is imagine, I guess, a meter by a meter sandbag used as a barrier. Uh, so we we're sort of leaning on that, looking down into this green zone, not really paying too much attention until we got that sort of that zinging, zipping sort of crack over our head which we quickly realised what it was and took some cover behind that HESCO and then proceeded to basically uh, giggle like little schoolgirls uh, when we realised what had happened. Didn't really sort of dawn on me how close that was to, to having uh, my ticket punched until sort of a few hours later. I was like, oh shit, that's, this is Afghanistan. This is real. That nervous giggle though, that's such a common story, mm. I hear. Yeah, yeah. And it's involuntary. It's, it's a release. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And that's what it was. And then I guess moving forward for... Um, significant events. So not long uh, before Steel was born, I was actually uh, blown up in a vehicle by a roadside bomb. You can't prepare yourself for being blown up. The violence, the shock, and then because of the dust uh, in Afghanistan, everything goes black because the dust just engulfs our vehicle at the time. So that was a point for me where I knew what had happened, but I wasn't sure whether I was still alive, basically. Like that I wasn't sure whether I was conscious or unconscious or because everything was black. I could, had no real uh, sense of where I was until I just got a little bit of light through the uh, top gun because I was sitting second seat in and Goody was outside the hatch. So I felt like a bit of movement on my leg, which was him standing up. Uh, so when I sort of orientated myself and understood what had happened and uh, put the story together, I sort of grabbed at him. There was four of us in the back. We all sort of started to make eye contact as it got lighter and then there was that giggle again, that holy shit. And I've, I've got a, a photo that I look at now and then and it's, it's quite funny of the two guys in the front, so the driver and crew commander sort of turning around looking at us like shitting themselves but with this huge grin on their face of like, that was awesome but I don't know what happened and unfortunately for them, they were quickly medevaced out with some compressed spines and a few other injuries but adrenaline's a great drug. Like it, They were over the moon for the first 30 seconds and then in a lot of pain. It sounds like you're really engaged by, I guess, you're in this zone, in this environment, and you're being tested just by being there, and that is really engaging you. The work itself, the explosive ordnance component, did you get to test that skill set sufficiently? Not as much as I would have liked personally. Um, again, that's just me wanting to, having a hunger to just get this job done uh, and continue doing this job. So I think we had around 11 IEDs roadside and uh, sort of mounted and dismounted, so road moves and sort of out on walking patrols, as well as a number of quite big caches that we recovered. So it could be anything from rifles to grenades, landmines, all the time RPGs and mortars and that sort of stuff. So there was definitely, we weren't short of work, but I always want to get out and do more. They would have put you in army uniform, I imagine? Yeah, 100%. So I was um, dressed army but had a beard, so that upset quite a few senior army people. That makes you yeah, look like special forces or something, yeah. Well, yeah, and I, I don't like to make that delineation because I don't think I'm any more special than anyone else and I definitely don't uh, qualify as special forces, but that was often the comment. It worked in our favour often because, uh, again, I was quite junior as an able seaman. Quite often my team leader uh, as a warrant officer would go, oi, go in there and ask for something because you've got a beard and they'll give it to you, assuming that I was uh, a, an SF operator. There was that, I guess, underlying tone um, of some that they didn't want Navy there or we're taking their jobs or whatever. But at the end of the day, I looked at my role there as like, I was there with my mates. Like we were there to do a job, whether it was the grand mission of, of taking over Afghanistan or winning hearts and minds, that wasn't even in my closest remit. It was just me there. We were there to 
uh, keep the roads safe, keep our mates safe and, and get home safe at the end of the day with everyone in one piece. Look, as long as you were competent and did your job well, they can't make any beach dolphin, beach whale jokes. So Yeah, exactly right. And I, uh, similar to Beck, I like to at least think that I'm competent and if not, do the work to to make sure I am. Um, I'm not the smartest bloke in the room or the, the fittest bloke in the room, but I'll, I'll always work hard. Well, in the lead up to Beck giving birth to Steele, are you feeding back home the stories? Babe, I was shot today and I was almost blown up today. And so is, are you stressing her out, Beck? Do you have any memories of... Absolutely not. He was not contacting me with any of that stuff. However, Sky News was telling me lots of stuff that was happening there. Um, I, I don't remember the date. I don't really remember too much of the circumstances around it, but there was a day where we had, or a few days where we had a, a few... Australians lose their lives. So over green that. and blue incident. Correct. Yes, and I hadn't heard from him, and they hadn't released any names. And I'm very pregnant, and I'm like, "What is going on?" And like, my mum is with me watching the news. Um, a friend of ours picked up the phone, and he co- he gave me a call, and he's like, "Yes, hello. Is this Petty Officer Howe? That was my last name." And I'm like, "Yes. Who is this?" And I just started crying and bawling my eyes out because it sounded like one of those calls that you're going to get, like. And I, I was horrible. I, I like put my phone down and my mum's grabbed it and she's like, who is this? Who's calling? And it was our friend Reno. And he had no idea what was happening. Like, and that, that's how it was. There was no news coming out from them. It was only what you got on television. No news isn't necessarily good news in this scenario. No way. No, we know better. We know better. Um, and yeah, and it's, if there's no news, because there's no comms, they've stopped you from calling home. There'd always be someone in a fob trying to call home or call someone. So, so the phones are down. Okay, well, something bad's happened. And then you just wait for that trickle of news. Probably the most significant thing for me while I was there was one of the days when the phones got cut and we'd heard that an engineer had been killed. And that was uh, Corporal Scott Smith at the time. I got to know Scotty really well on during my EOD training. He sort of took me under his wing because I went and did an army course. I was the only Navy guy there. Again, I was junior and I had no idea what I was doing. Not a fucking clue. These guys were already veterans of Afghanistan. They were looking at these jobs that the staff would set up for us, and they're like, yeah, I know what that is. That's a PG-7 golf. I'm like, I don't even know what that means, let alone what this piece of ordinance is. So I was so far out of my depth. So he took me, he spent the time with me, would drive into course and out course, which was at Holsworthy at the time. He didn't know me anything. He didn't have to be my mate. And we became really really close he came home and spent christmas with beck and me and my family in adelaide we stayed there with uh, his partner Liv at the time and it was great so when that phone got cut and i knew that it was an engineer and i knew a few bits and pieces of what was going on i was like shit that's that's scotty and for context steel is born on the 4th of october and 17 days later scott is killed he's attached to november platoon of the second commando regiment so this is a great high in your life and a great low so close together. I think it's a very ugly but apt reflection of the nature of this work. Yeah, 100%. The highs and the lows are polar opposites. They're so, so high and then so, so low. I look back very fondly on being involved in that ID blast and being blown up because it brought me a few days back at TK to do the, I guess, the uh, required medical screening and that sort of stuff. But I got to catch up with Scotty while I was there. So I look back at that very fondly. We shared a couple of beers, snuck them in. But yeah, it was nice to hang out with him. And then, yeah, two weeks later or so, then and he's gone. Um, so yeah, I've fo- I look back on that fondly. And then December 2012, you return home, make it home in time for Christmas, I assume, and more importantly, to meet your son. Yeah, 
nothing prepares you for that. I've always been quite maternal, um, but nothing prepares you for this little ball of dirty nappies and tears and uh, that's now yours or ours. Um, so that was an amazing experience. Very, And I look back and I still feel awkward thinking about it because I didn't know what to do with this little child. I, I cuddled it and I felt I almost felt a little bit disconnected from him to start with because I just wasn't there for any of the pregnancy. That whole nine months I was doing workups, obviously wasn't there for the birth and then till he was sort of three months old. Um, so it was very much just someone else's kid for the first day or so until I really started to bond with him. And now, and Beck can probably comment on this, but we are thick as thieves now. I wouldn't change anything that we've been through for the world. Like that's just, it's just our story now. I think it's also so great that you two are in the service together at the same time, because that length of time apart in a relationship, take out the pregnancy, that's still for most people very challenging, but then you do that whilst also having a child. We were both signed on a lease in 2017. We'd never lived together. We had a baby, we got married. And then we live together. Yeah. Bit unorthodox, but yeah. it's well, it's worked out so far. She's still sticking around. So Ash, you return home from a highly kinetic environment. Beck, you have freshly given birth. You both have this wonderful son together. Possible next chapter, but you both keep going. Yeah. You'll take maternity leave for a while. Ash, you go to the ADF dive school first as an instructor and then a student on a subsequent course. And then Beck, what are you going to do after your mat leave? I took a posting position at the training and assessment faculty at Cerberus. So writing, managing all course content, um, course structure, but mainly dealing with TAFE for the cooks. Um, so doing a lot of that mapping between civilian um, qualifications and training to our qualifications and training and then meeting the gap. So I was doing that for the medical course, dental course and for the chefs. Um, so it was good. It was, I was still in Melbourne. I was still living with mum and dad. I took the job because Ashley was still away doing his stuff and we're like well by the time his posting finishes and then my posting finishes we can hopefully meet up and then finally live together for the first time in our whole entire life and hopefully you two like each other when you do yeah, it was, it was, we're still working it was through an that. adjustment so i was there for about 18 months and then came up to sydney and went into the went back to the medical training school so that's sort of been my path is either i'm either at sea or i'm in training or i'm actually training and Beck, life takes a turn for you where you go from treating people to you find being a patient yourself. My dad did um, the bowel test that comes in the mail, sent it off and he got a note saying, I'll oh, just go see your doctor. Anyway, so he went and saw his doctor. His doctor said, look, it looks like you've got some cancer markings. Best to go and have a scope done. If you've got children and they're over the age of 30, get them to have a, a test done as well. That's what we did. I went in there on the Wednesday morning and then Wednesday afternoon, the surgeon that conducted the colonoscopy called both of us in, which was really strange because I'm just in like day surgery recovery. And he's like, you've got cancer and I can't deal with this. We're going to have to refer you off to somebody that, that can actually, a specialist or a consultant at the time. The conversation is still very blurry. <laughs> I was told I had cancer at 34 and I didn't really think anything of it because like I said, I just kept getting on with it. I had to make plans. I had to book surgery. I Ashley was deploying for nine months on a runter the following week. I had 80% of my bowel removed and my uh, appendix removed. They found cancers on my appendix as well. I was in hospital for a couple of weeks. The day after or the day of my surgery, when I came out and the doctor told you everything was okay, he left. He had to catch a plane to Gove or something. Perth to get, uh, jump on the ship to head away. 
it would be really easy, so I won't do it, to have a crack at you, Ash, for this pattern. But it's uh, to be fair, that's, that is the service lifestyle, and that's actually a reflection of what you both go through and the burden you both have, and it easily could have been the other way in this scenario. Myla's just a bit restless there, shaking. And uh, obviously, Beck's going through bowel cancer surgery and recovery, but also what's it like from your perspective, Ash, in that got a young child and you're going off to do a job you love, but I can also imagine there's some guilt there that you are leaving your partner behind. So it's balancing those, that professional and personal spheres. Is it weighing on your mind? Are you able to compartmentalize and switch on, jobs on, focus on that? Yeah, very much both of those options, to be honest. I'm very good at compartmentalizing, um, possibly too good that I become- um, I Bex watching you while you answer this Yeah, question. that's right, and she knows too, uh, that I, Often I'm probably seen as blasé and lack that uh, amount of care that I probably should have at times. So while I think compartmentalization is good, there's, um, there's a time and a place for it. So we effectively left from Perth and sailed to India first as a, an initial port. Yeah, the guilt um, of the whole situation I was very aware of, having uh, left her on her lonesome to give birth to our son and then another major sort of health scare, which hadn't fully been... Um, concluded at the time like there was still expected there was going to be other surgeries but Beck being her stubborn self she got on with it and there wasn't any surgeries and she just she just got on and got it done she just continued with the life didn't miss a beat so yeah I take my hat off to her that like life was easy for me I was sitting on a boat getting fed my three squares a day and going to all these amazing ports yes there was some harder work in between I was very absent from from what was really happening with with our life back at home um, so that that wore on me until I knew that she was um, back on her feet and she was healthy and she was going to be okay. And then I could um, sort of reconcile with myself. So our main role there was uh, drug interdiction. So as as we know, a lot of drugs that come out of Afghanistan uh, move through and then head down uh, in through Africa, into Europe, and then sort of spread through the world. Um, so there's that line of coastline down through Africa and um, out of the Middle East is quite prolific with uh, hash and heroin. Um, so you got like the smack track, they commonly refer to it, uh, where they where they run a fair bit of heroin through. So yeah, we were targeting drug vessels and to a degree weapons, although we didn't come across any uh, being smuggled. Um, there was a lot of drugs. So you're looking around, we came up with a figure of around a billion dollars worth of hash and heroin by the end of that nine month deployment, which uh, was uh, a really good haul. Um, that was three of heroin and two of hash. And you're looking at these being, some of these boardings would go on for two to three days because um, you're looking at, quite significant size, uh, what we call dows. So it's somewhere between a fishing boat and a cargo vessel, but made of wood and in quite poor repair. Back, you are then a chief petty officer at Fleet HQ. Mm -hmm. And in 2019, you have a, another bow issue and it has a rather dramatic scene that unfolds. Can yeah, you? it does. I, I was um, a medical watchman for the amphibious task group the chief medic there doing health planning, working with health intelligence um, and basically doing all the health stuff to do all our amphibious operations that people see on the news that were up north in Bowen and doing all that stuff with all the boats. And this one night, I, it was about seven o'clock at night and I started getting like sore pains in my belly. I'm, I get adhesion pain. That's normally what happens when they cut you open, um, especially in your belly. Um, so I've dealt with that. But when I was first diagnosed with the cancer, that was in October, 
I had my surgery in November and I was back at work full time in January after the Christmas leave period. So I made a pretty good recovery. I took really good care of myself, but that came at a detriment. Like I just worked too hard for that, but I was still striving. I was still progressing. I was still on that path of, I wanted to be fleet woe med. Like I wanted to go high in these places and I was young and I had time to do that. So yeah, so by the time, um, I, I was at the ATG, we were on HMAS Adelaide. I started getting a pain in my belly sitting at the watch desk and I thought this is a bit strange so I try to walk it off, try to breathe it off like I would normally do and it just wouldn't pass. And then I found myself going down to the sick bay and I was just toppled over in pain. An x-ray was taken, I was put on some ketamine and some pretty strong medications um, to help with the pain and just to settle me down. From the x-ray, it was more of like a teaching point too because all these medics are seeing my bowel that's non-existent. They're like, whoa, this is amazing. I'm like, Shit started getting bad after that. I started progressively like declining. My mental health was really bad. I thought I was going to die. Even to this day, I still think that I would have died on there if I hadn't gone down to the sick bay when I did. Next thing you know, our helo deck was crashed. Like no one could land or take off on the helos. We had an incident. I I believe it was fuel or something like that. So anyway, it was still being investigated. They crashed the deck so a toll um, care flight could come and pick me up. And this is something that I would be doing from my desk. So I was like in my ketamine stupor, I was like, I would be writing my own signal to get me off the ship. And then after that, it's just a bit blurry. I ended up at some makeshift hospital in Rockhampton because we're in the middle of an exercise so everything's makeshift wearing clothes that don't fit you that belong to men very interesting times but um that was the catalyst that was it as a result of that that led to a medical discharge correct so um, my bowel obstructed on itself I had some issues with adhesion pain they couldn't give me a definite diagnosis afterwards and they couldn't give me a prognosis that it was going to happen again at that point I knew my career was done as a medic you lose a lot of hope you know the facts are the facts. I can't go to sea and I can't fulfil my role. Even though I was a chief medic and I've probably done enough time at sea, I would think so. There still was that element there that you still need to be able to be deployable and I, I wasn't ticking that box. So when I was confronted with that, um, everything that I've known as an adult, I basically lost my shit. I became very depressed. I was severe anxiety. Uh, three or four weeks after being off the ship, I was heavily addicted to opiates alcohol, getting diagnosed with PTSD, generalised anxiety disorder, and then started that process of being discharged. I was medically discharged in the height of COVID, so most of my appointments were done via phone. Even more clinical. But yeah, that's sort of what happened. I got sort of lost in the system during COVID, like most people that discharged during that time. So we're trying to pick up our feet in that now. I remember during my discharge meeting that you have with the commanding officer, the commanding officer that I had the meeting with, I don't even remember his name, Never worked for him before. Nice enough bloke, just doing his job. But it would have been nice to be somebody there that, I don't know, maybe my boss should have given me my discharge. You know, it it was very impersonal. And I remember standing there with the CEO and and Ashley was there too. And I just said to him, it's so powerful having a choice. This choice has been taken away from me. If I had my way, I wouldn't be leaving. Even at that point when I was sitting there at the CEO's desk, I was like, I don't want to, I don't want this to end. But I have to because you're telling me that it has to end. But I was slowly, all those years of all that shit was building up, building up, and it was time to go. So, Ash, uh, Beck is going through this period of great transition. You're still in, but you take a bit of a different career 
trajectory towards the end there. Can you walk me through how you go from being a clearance diver and you've been spending years with the dive school in various capacities prior to this, and then you end up in the intelligence route and end up being in Kabul during the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. Uh, can you walk us through that journey? As I often say about my career and encourage others, right place, right time. At the time I was instructing at the school, I'd uh, done advanced course and been promoted to petty officer and was uh, a lead instructor at the dive school. And I didn't like the trajectory of where the clearance diving branch was heading. We weren't getting as much employment as what I thought we should. And this is world according to me. I was there to get out, see the world uh, and do whatever I can and wherever I can. Yeah, so I didn't agree with what was happening for the for the clearance diving branch. Uh, so that led me to look up and out. And there was a quite a big push on the human intelligence core at the time, or that's not a specific core, but yeah, human intelligence program. So I put my hand up for that and quickly uh, got told no. Uh, due to the clearance diving branch being quite short, uh, they wanted to retain us all within our core roles. I, however, managed to get on the selection for that program, uh, passed that, uh, which sort of tied their hands a little bit and had to let me sort of go. I agreed to stay at the dive school for another 12 months uh, on top of my posting and then uh, was lucky enough to post back to one in battalion in Inaugura in Brisbane. And that's where the, the human journey started. Went up to Canungra and conducted uh, my interrogation course which was quite foreign, quite unknown as the intelligence world generally tends to be. It left me uh, very much out of my comfort zone. Having to apply particular and certain techniques, which I won't go into for obviously uh, security reasons, applying those techniques to people to gain information that they don't necessarily want to give up, really, really enjoyable, but super challenging at the same time. And was successful through that course, uh, was employed at one in battalion as an interrogator and then went on to become an interrogation manager, which sort of led into the fall of Afghanistan as, as we look at it now. It was sort of an on again, off again, as we saw, it was depicted well through the media that the whole thing was on again, off again. And, and that's how we felt at the time. We were sort of going, I'd kiss back and steal for three or four days and said, hey, I might be home tonight. I might not be. I could find myself in Afghanistan or who knows. Um, so it was very much an unknown until one day I didn't come home. We got on the plane and found ourselves in Amenhad Air Base just outside of Dubai. And that's where we staged from as, as an interrogation unit. Effectively, we were trying to get to the bottom of who each individual person was. And that's even as simple as having passports or driver's license or some kind of personal identification. We had kids that had no parents. Uh, we had parents that had lost their kids. We had families displaced from, there was, I think we had three three camps full of Afghan evacuees. So trying to piece together who belongs to who and also if they're suitable to return to Australia. The problem being that we'd already pulled them out of Afghanistan. They weren't necessarily wanted or able to be left in Dubai. And then if they were found to be of sort of nefarious background, then we were forced to almost bring them back to Australia. But then we knew who was who in the zoo effectively. What was it like being there? Because you knew what was happening and obviously the rapidity of which it all unfolded, I think, shocked most people. But actually sort of being there and having to do that very hard thing of you're part of the filter of who's getting on a plane and who's not. How do you tackle that? I go back to the compartmentalisation. Like I was able to sort of uh, take myself out of the personal effect of these, these poor uh, people that were being taken out of their home and just put it down to a professional, okay, who is this person? Do they belong here? Who do they belong to? Can they come back to Australia? Here's my recommendation. So I was able to, yeah, separate that within my, my head. And I had the benefit of having been to Afghanistan before and 
understanding cultural nuances. And when you're doing this work, though, of course, you are doing it to strict criteria. You've given very narrow parameters to make these decisions on, so you're more fulfilling of function then you don't have as much remit for independent judgment 100 percent. you're almost taken completely out there's no there's no room for i guess there's always room for human error but it's reduced as much as possible and when people hear interrogator they think uh worst possible sort of treatment of people you look at how it's been again through the media through what's happened with uh u.s interrogation sort of techniques and stuff and we were not at all about that and that's why we were there to screen not to interrogate the um but yeah, I, I agree with the statement that we were there uh, and we had our left and right of arc and it was a it was a go, no go. This person, yes. This person, he needs extra background checks before. I don't think anyone envies the position you were put in. No, it was definitely challenging, particularly when you saw families and young kids and particularly when they're young kids displaced from their family. Uh, we were there pretty early on. I guess once it sort of hit TV, uh, we were there sort of three days later. It was well underway. The US were US and UK were were fully in and had a lot going on. And we were, I guess, in my opinion, a little bit late to the party. And when were you out? Uh, we were there five days. A long five days. Very long five days, yeah. You come back safe and sound. In January 2022, you're the Chief Petty Officer of Explosive Ordnance Disposal. And then in March, you receive a diagnosis that sees the course of that year running to be your final year in the Navy. Whilst I was in uh, Aminhad doing the Afghan evacuation, I was promoted to Chief Petty Officer, which initiated a posting back to the uh, back to the clearance diving world and back to the clearance diving team to take up that position as uh, Chief of EOD. Uh, that was a position that I had always aspired to be in. That was sort of since that time in Afghanistan back in 2012, um, working in that role, uh, I sort of looked at that Chief of EOD is the pinnacle of where I wanted to get to. It was, it's really interesting on me in hindsight that uh, the, the old saying of be careful what you wish for is, um, is quite true here. That I got to that point and I recognised what I'd been through. I'd hidden a lot of demons uh, throughout my career because I knew that that would stunt my career very quickly if I was open about them. And it got to the point where I was now charged with putting my subordinates into places where I'd been and I had had negative experiences. And that really weighed quite heavily on me to a point where I had to put my hand up and sort of get these these demons, I guess, put them in check and get them sorted out so I could continue to live a happy and successful life with my family. You prioritise yourself as you should. Yeah, I did. And it took a long time to do that. The catalyst for that was me being separated from Beck and Steel. They were still in Brisbane while I was in Sydney. And then having that I'll say pressure for lack of a better word or burden of sending these young kids effectively that I'd trained in the, in the years previous to then say, okay, well now it's your turn to go and swim through a minefield and find a mine that I know is going to be hunting you and you're not going to come back from that. Yeah. That burden really weighed quite heavily on me. You ultimately medically discharge from the Navy Ash and that's due to a PTSD diagnosis. Can you talk to me about that mental health journey? Yeah, for sure. That And that journey started from very, very early on in my career when I uh, pulled a girl to got attacked by a shark. So while I wasn't there for the specific incident, however, once they returned, once he went to hospital and the guys returned back to the unit, uh, I was sort of down with the boat and cleaning that out and seeing that um, what had happened uh, through that time, which was quite, uh, quite a lot of blood and gore left in there. My greatest fear is sharks. So to see that put into put into practice and what actually happens 
I really struggled diving from then on. So you're looking at probably 15 years of a career that every time I got in the water, I was like, this may be the last time. There was one incident at Jervis Bay on a workup where I was the dive, MCM diver, so going down to find mine, and I, I literally couldn't couldn't move, couldn't, couldn't function uh, to the point where someone else had to get in the water. And I sat there for the whole time they were in the water and thought, if he dies, it's my fault. Moving through to that PTSD diagnosis, again, you've got, uh, the whole experience of Afghanistan, a few little moral injuries from the Middle East with leaving people that were most likely going to die on suspected drug vessels. So a PTSD diagnosis to me wasn't all that surprising. I knew it was there and I hit it because I knew that it would stunt my career. So yeah, when it all came to it, uh, I was a bit of a broken wreck towards the end uh, and it was it was time for me to, to put myself and my family first because I just couldn't keep going like that. So you embraced the diagnosis and the discharge for the sake of yourself and your family. You emailed me on your last day of service as well. You had this yearning, I guess, to share your experiences. Can you talk about that? I guess the mechanism behind that is uh, we have a story that is quite different to most people, but also very, very similar. There's thousands of defense people out there just like us that go through the same thing. I am a massive advocate now for people's mental health and for getting the help that they need early. Because I have seen through my experience and through Beck's experience that if you leave it for a period of time, a week, a year, a career, it doesn't get better with time. Through us being here, hopefully people will hear that and say, all right, well, I need to just go and just have a little bit of a tune up here or whatever. It doesn't mean you're going to lose a career. It just means that you're looking after yourself. Do you agree with that, Beck, or are you dragged here kicking and screaming? No, 100%. 100% agree. You have to. It's like your brain is injured. It has an injury and you have to fix that. You have to you have to put the work in to fix it. You have to turn up every day to fix it or try and make it better. Neither of us wanted to leave our job. We both loved it. Like I would not change my career for anything. I look now as everything is an experience and I try and learn from that experience. I was dragged kicking and shoving from the job. Like while you have a decision or you can sit there and say, when the doctor says, hey, mate, you're J52, that's the end of your career, you can say yes or you can fight it. For me at the time, like I'd done all my fighting to keep myself standing up through my whole career. I was out of fight at the time. I needed to fix myself. What's really great is that you're both there to support each other and that you've gone through different struggles at different times, but there's that commonality. There's that understanding as a result. And Beck, you've even mentioned to me that you've been going through some mental health difficulties recently. I had made plans to take my life on Australia Day this year. Following that, I was bounced in between Prince Charles Hospital and all sorts of hospitals. And then I was admitted into Pine Rivers Hospital until the 2nd of March, just the day before I turned 40. <laughs> and we're recording now on the 25th of March. Thank you. <laughs> um, I obviously didn't know this, Karen. <laughs> I didn't know I was depressed. I didn't know I had depression. I knew I had anxiety. I knew I had generalised anxiety disorder. I was treated for such as a health professional or used to be, I used to think, well, this is what my treatment plan is. This is what I need to do. I need to take my meds. I need to go to my appointments. Or at that time, it was all over the phone. And I just kept tracking on doing what I was doing. And I started getting sick. I noticed I wasn't great when I was catching up with friends I haven't seen in like seven years. And we went away for a girls weekend and I, I just felt out of place. I felt these are the people that know me the, the best or close to. And I've, I've spent most of my career with and I just couldn't, I, I just couldn't be who I was. And then after seeing some people and, and that over the last six months, I, I'm just, I wasn't well. I got to the point where I didn't think that I was being a burden on my family. 
my back was to the wall that I knew that there was nothing else that could fix me. With the knowledge that I had and the information that I had about mental health, I thought I was doing everything right. I didn't know to ask for questions. I didn't know to ask for help. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that in me to go, oh, this doesn't seem right. Could you want to look into that? Or can I have some bloods done or doing it? Because I was so used to being told what to do. You don't need to ask for help. Just get on with it and work it out for yourself. So I would. But it, it, that's not the case. And I thought, oh, well, if this is it and this is what my life's going to be like, then I'm not going to do that. My mum and Ashley were over at my house. They called an ambulance and then put into the system for five weeks. Well, Beck, I'm really glad to meet you. Thank you. And really glad you're still here with us. Thanks. Since Beck's been out of hospital, I've got the girl back that I met so long ago. She's confident. She's happy. She still has her ups and downs with, with things and, and some triggers, but she's 100% a different person. Life is good. We love what we have. We love our life. We just came back from a holiday for our 40th and we were stoked to be at home. And it's, we share something in common. We've always shared things in common. We're both going through different stages of our mental health journey. And it's like, you know, we need to talk about mental health like we talk about diabetes. You know, it's like, how are you going today? Oh, my diabetes is really high today. Well, why aren't we saying, oh, my anxiety is really high today. Oh, I'm really depressed today. And I just, I think, I'm going to feel good tomorrow because I feel good now because it's, I've had a chance to actually say something. You talked about mental health, you know, when it's negative, that is an injury the same way we talk about physical injuries, we talk about poor physical health, it is all the same. One has a stigma that is, I think, been eroded, but it's still very much there. Look, it's still there and I do have some issues when it comes to how I'm perceived with Milo. I've had a lot of people ask me, or why do you have him? Or you're too young to be a veteran or, you know, or they look at you and, and you know, they're seeing the veteran patch on his jacket and they see me and they think, oh, you've got your two arms and your two legs. What's going on here? You know, Or are the medals are meant to be on that side of your chest? <laughs> oh my God, don't even start singing that song. I'll sing it with you. I know the, one of the singers from that song. Um, I'm glad that I left just in time before the hype of that song came into action. But yeah, like there is still a lot of stigma with it and I, I, I will feel good. I will feel a bit uh, after this, but I think coming, moving forward, I needed to do this more than what I actually realised. I feel like there's still more to talk about, but I don't think that this is the forum. I think it's just going to be over the, the, the rest of my life. We've all got time to tell a worry, haven't we? We've all got time to tell stories and that's how it should be. There's no destination, just the journey. Oh, I like that. Very nice. You can quote me. Thanks. <laughs> how do you both reflect on your time in the Navy today? Like I said before, I would not change anything for the world. I got to see a lot of the world. I got to experience a lot of stuff that challenged me, turned me into who I am today and let me meet my wife, have our son, and live what is now an amazing life. I thank the military and the Navy for that, but I'm not sure that I'd let my son go there. I look at my career after being out for a couple of years now. It's patchy. I'm starting to get a lot of my memory back with certain things. Some things I totally forgot about, and I'm like spewing that I forgot about them because they were great times, but it's all coming back. Um, if you had asked me this question like four months ago, I'd probably be like, I don't even want to talk about it. I probably wouldn't even turn up. Like, I'd be like, oh, you can go by yourself. I'm not doing that. It's just a chapter. It's a part of your life. Shitty things happen to really good people all the time. I think that I've done the best that I possibly can with what I had. 
I used everything that was given to me to the best of my ability. But besides all just the career stuff, I've, I've, I've met my family in there. The godparent of our son is a Navy guy, you know, shout out to Renault. That's how we are. That's, that's who your family becomes. So I love those things. Plus, I met my husband and, yeah, I forgot his name, but I remember now. Um, we have a son and we have a beautiful home and, and lifestyle here in Queensland. Those shit things are going to come up all the time. They're going to come up. It's just a matter of how you are at that point and whether or not you have the strength to deal with that. And if you don't, that is absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. There'll be more shit days ahead, but I think you two have had your share of those. So I wish you both all the best. (laughs) And that there's far more good than bad. Thank you so much for your honesty, for your candor, for your willingness to open up. It's not easy, especially when some of these things are so recent and raw. It's a real testament to both your characters. Thank you for coming and speaking to me today. Thank you. Thanks, Alex. We've recorded many stories with RAN veterans over the last seven years. You can find all of them listed on our website. There are three episodes that particularly jump to mind based on this conversation with Beck and Ash. The first is with Angus Horden in season two, number 17, Dave Stafford Finney. We were shooting 50 cows within what looked like 50 centimetres of their bridge. You know, they were actually shooting across the bow. The second conversation is one I had in season two with another clearance diver, number 25, Paul DeGelder. I'd given up. I'd basically accepted the fact that I was going to die. I also suggest listening in season three to number 64, Jodie Farmer. As I came up, he must have just caught me out the corner of his eye. I identified ourselves, Royal Australian Navy boarding party team, I need you to come with me. And all of a sudden, he pulled out this, I'm assuming it was a machete, but it kind of looked like a giant Aladdin sword. It was huge. And I called weapon. Follow this podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at Life on the Line Podcast, on Twitter at L-O-T-L pod, and on LinkedIn at Thistle Productions. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workoven. Thank you for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>